Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Guy Collander. In this programme, we'll focus on the benefits of part-time higher education. According to a new report, part-time study helps boost your career before you graduate and even makes you happier too. Staying close to home, we'll then learn about one of Bloomsbury's most famous residents, J.M. Barry. Did you know that the author of Peter Pan was also a keen filmmaker? We'll find out more. First, let's discuss part-time study, a subject familiar to all at Birkbeck, as the college has been providing opportunities for people to improve their skills and or retrain by undertaking part-time study since 1823. I'm joined now by Birkbeck's Professor Claire Callender, to find out more about her latest research into the benefits of part-time study. Well, this is a unique study. It's a longitudinal study of part-time students uh, tracking their career development over time. We uh, surveyed um, over 4,000 students drawn from 29 universities from across the UK, including Birkbeck, of course. And you interviewed the students repeatedly? That's right. We had two cohorts of students. Um, One cohort were in their first year of study in 2008, and the second cohort were in their final year of study in 2008. And both two groups were then re-interviewed in 2010. And we also did some qualitative um, interviews to get some more in-depth understanding about their experiences. And all of them were studying undergraduate degrees, uh, so first degrees, foundation degrees, and HNCs or HNDs. And they benefited greatly in the workplace while they were studying. Yes. Of course, the the first thing that's so important when you're thinking about the benefits of study um, is, uh, and we're talking about part-time students, is that the vast majority of them are employed. And so uh, over 80% of all the students we surveyed were employed, and they're mostly employed full-time, and also primarily in the public sector. Um, And so what was so interesting about this study is when we were examining the benefits of study is that it demonstrates so clearly how the students we surveyed and the graduates we, we surveyed, how... Um, students began to reap the benefits of study well before they graduated, as well as benefiting once they had graduated. And those figures are very impressive. 69% of students reported that their studies had improved their confidence at work. The same number claimed their job performance had improved. Half were taking on more responsibilities. Really very positive results. They are very positive results. And I think when you're thinking about the benefits of study, you can look at lots of different dynamics. First of all, the most important thing within broader debates about um, higher education and, and and the skills agenda is whether or not students use the skills they learn on their course in their jobs. And in that sense, these part-time students, they're the issue. It's it's a resounding success. Over 80% of students who we surveyed um, uh, use the skills that they learn on their course. But there are benefits, and one could categorise them as hard or tangible benefits in terms of um, uh, pay increases, in terms of promotion, in terms of better career prospects. And, benef- and, and again, students who are 
currently studying as well as those who have graduated benefit in such way. Although students who have graduated, graduates, the 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 um, returns in terms of higher higher salaries and in terms of changing jobs that tends to happen at a greater to a greater extent than those who are still studying, so that's one sort of benefit. Then there are sort of less tangible benefits associated with different attitudes to work or, for example, as you've mentioned, um, having more confidence in the way they work, taking on greater responsibility while at work and um, a feeling that they're more qualified to, to do their work. And in addition to those employment-type benefits, there are also, of course, the wider benefits. I mean, what we show is the way in which um, students' happiness improves as a direct result of their engagement in their course. And that's very high as well. That, well, that's 55% said yes. their happiness improved. Indeed. Um, and um, they appreciate learning much more. Uh, there's evidence of greater civil participation, so in, in terms of um, involvement with voluntary organisations or voting behaviour, for example. So there is an enormous array of different sort of benefits to part-time higher education. And what is so important is the way, as I say, the way in which start, students start to reap these benefits well before they graduate. Whereas with full-time students, those benefits tend to accrue once they have graduated. So we've talked about the benefits for individual students, but there are also benefits of part-time study for employers and the wider economy. Could you tell us about those? Yes, they're, they're very important um, in, in many ways. Uh, first of all, uh, part-time study um, means uh, that, that, they, they, that the students studying help fill um, uh, skills gaps in, 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 in the economy. And they're attractive to employers because um, they can continue working while studying. And, and uh, using what they're and, and learning. Using, and absolutely, and using what they're learning um, uh, um, in their jobs on, a, on an everyday basis. So for the economy as a whole, they're very important. It's a very important um, way of improving the higher level skills that um, employers want and the economy needs um, to help growth um, uh, and to, to, to help um, you know, the economic recovery of, of, of the country. And employers also important with regards to part-time students in terms of their role of helping to pay towards tuition fees. What our study, our, our study looked at the different sources of funding that students um, uh, accessed to pay for their tuition fees. And we found that 40% of all the students that we surveyed got some help towards their tuition fees from their employers. And um, as I mentioned, our study is longitudinal. And what we were able to do is we, we were able to show that over time, um, tuition fees did go up, and they went up well above inflation. Um, and this, is, of course, is before... Um, these current very large hikes in fees. So tuition fees went up by about 27%, um, but inflation was um, about 4.4% over that period of time. Now, the, the, the next question is, who bore the cost of that increase in fees? And the answer is that it was shared between 
the students, the employees, but also by employers. However, what we did find is that a, a far smaller proportion of employers were, were funding all of the students' tuition fees. They were still making a contribution, but the level of that contribution was not as great, and they weren't meeting the full costs of any increase in fees. And I suppose that is you know, a concern in relation to the, um, the new system of funding, where tuition fees are going to be so much higher relative to what, I was, what, what, what they were when, when, when this study um, was undertaken. Claire Callender, Birkbeck's Professor of Higher Education Policy in the Department of Psychosocial Studies, talking about the Future Trek part-time students' report. She co-authored the study for the Higher Education Careers Services Unit with David Wilkinson of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And now to something different, the Bloomsbury Festival and the films of J.M. Barry. Birkbeck is in the heart of Bloomsbury, a leafy part of the capital well known for its artistic, literary and philosophical connections, thanks to the writings of the Bloomsbury Group, including Virginia Woolf, E.M. Forster and John Maynard Keynes. This heritage was celebrated during the recent Bloomsbury Festival, a weekend of talks, dance, drama, poetry and performance. I'm joined by Birkbeck's professor Ian Christie to find out about his part in the celebrations. Ian, could you tell us how you were involved in the festival? I um, took the opportunity to propose something which I'm very interested in, which is really the side of the Bloomsbury group that people don't know about, which was the fact that they were interested in film. Uh, we think of them as mainly literary folk, but the truth is that, of course, they came into existence as a group during the very period when film was becoming popular. And so the question of their relationship with film, which wasn't a simple or a straightforward one, is quite an interesting subject. And what sort of films are we talking about in the early 20th century? Well, I think we're talking about two or three kinds of film, really. One is the, the very, very early actuality films, and Virginia Woolf would write about these in her essay in 1926. She clearly had seen very early films because she lists them, the kind of subjects they had, and, and talks about how delightful they were. Primitive, she thought they were, but they had a charm. The other kind of film is amateur filmmaking, um, which J.M. Barry was, was very involved in, um, partly because he was frustrated in doing the kind of things he would like to have done in other kinds of cinema, and the third kind, I suppose, is art cinema, what we might think of as art cinema, when uh, foreign European continental films started to appear in Britain. And that also was the occasion for Virginia Woolf um, staking out her position on cinema. And these were all silent films? These all belonged to the so-called silent era, when music was the only accompaniment. <laughs> and most people will recognise J.M. Barry as the author of Peter Pan, about the boy who would not grow up but not as a filmmaker. And in your presentation, you spoke about J.M. Barry's films. People don't seem to uh, know, in general, that Barry was somebody absolutely fascinated by film. Um, from a very early stage, he was already a hugely successful playwright, um, even before he wrote Peter Pan, of course, which took him to new heights. But he really hankered after doing something with film. And what he wanted to do was not exactly straightforward. He had an extraordinary idea that he would link live performance with film, and he put on something called a cinema supper, which involved filming people who were invited to dinner, including the then Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, 
And the idea was that, that this would be linked with uh, a stage presentation so that you would see the same characters on stage and on screen, as it were. This, this really seemed to be what, what intrigued him. He had one go at it um, in 1914, and uh, he shot a Western, believe it or not, <laughs> with G.K. Chesterton, uh, George Bernard Shaw, um, and a few other distinguished folk of the time. And the film is lost. All we have are stills, and a, and a very vivid description of it in Chesterton's memoirs. So it, it really did happen. So not what you would expect from the likes of John Bernard Shaw. No, exactly. And he went on to make another film called The Real Thing at Last, uh, which again, sadly, is lost. But we know a lot about that. There are reviews and descriptions of it. And that involved doing Macbeth, very condensed Macbeth, in two styles. One as a as um, a, uh, an American gangster film, um, you know, if, if Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, it's a cinch, <laughs> read one of the intertitles. Um, and the other version of it was a, an English drawing room comedy version where everybody's terribly refined. And Barry's film actually cut these two together so that you have this kind of you know, contrast between these two extreme styles of doing Macbeth. And that was shown in front of the king and queen as a charity gala in 1916 and got lots of reviews, but sadly was lost. And Jane Barry has many links with the area. All the rights to Peter Pan, the money raised from that, has, is now going to Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children nearby. Absolutely. Um, yes, it, it's, it's one of these things that when we think about the writers who make up the Bloomsbury Group, we often forget about the outliers like Barry, uh, who was indeed very much a Bloomsbury resident during perhaps his most creative period. And what did you show? You presented your talk in the uh, the Birkbeck Cinema, tucked away in Gordon Square. Did you show snippets of these films? We showed the 1924 um, Peter Pan uh, to a capacity audience, I have to say. Not many people have seen it. Um, it's a very, very fine version of Peter Pan, even if Barry didn't write the script. I think he would have been very pleased with the film. I showed a little clip from one of Barry's amateur films, because when he couldn't make some of the films he wanted to make, he would uh, he would actually shoot amateur films at his um, country house parties during the summer. And some of these have survived, and very wonderful they are too, because they involve the same family, the boys who were the inspiration for Peter Pan. They would take part in them. And uh, we showed um, Finding Neverland, which is a, a rather delightful film about Barry and his early years. And I showed a clip from um, Mrs. Dalloway, which I think is one of the best adaptations of Virginia Woolf from her most cinematic novel, Mrs Dalloway. How was your talk received? Well, I, I think we had a, a good audience. I mean, it's interesting that many of the audience were clearly there because they're interested in the Bloomsbury writers. And I suppose part of my mission as a, as a film historian and also as a, as a cultural historian is really to try to take people a little beyond their comfort zone. So a number of people in the audience had never really thought of these writers in relation to cinema before. So I was trying to help them understand that everybody was interested in film to some degree. Some people you know, were, were passionately interested and some were a bit doubtful about the direction that cinema was going in. But there's no question that, that film was firmly on the agenda in the, in the 20s. And, of course, that's something which um, you know, any historian of Bloomsbury needs to reckon with. Ian Christie, Birkbeck's anniversary professor of film and media history in the Department of History of Art and Screen Media discussing his passion for early 20th century film. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, research and courses, visit www.bbk.ac.uk. Mm -hmm.